Simple Beep, Episode 74, The Rumor Mill. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about looking into the future of the Mac and Apple's products, or at least the best attempts that have been made at it by looking at the rumor mill. And we're excited to do this now because as we're recording, it's the beginning of September. New iPhone announcements are literally days away. And that means that we're in peak rumor season. And we got to thinking about, you know, what kind of rumors are being put together this year. Not so interesting for this podcast. You've got other ones for that. But what kind of rumors we've heard over the years, over the decades, and the ways that they reached us. And so we're going to go through a whole bunch of rumor sites and some of the top rumors that we remember from several decades of Apple history. Before we go into that, though, we do have a couple pieces of follow-up. This first piece of follow-up harkens back to our episode 28 about children's software. We discussed a bunch of classic edutainment titles there, including where in the world or where in the USA or where in time, et cetera, et cetera, is Carmen Sandiego. And Ben Novak, who goes by at title character on Twitter, tweeted a link to a Wikipedia article that describes the software title, where in North Dakota is Carmen Sandiego? And apparently this was a one-off software pilot program that uh, was only for the Apple II, and it was the the fourth in the series of Carmen Sandiego games. Um, and it was basically put out there uh, to see if uh, there was a market for releasing 50 software titles, one for each United State. Um, and so the, it's a wonderfully detailed Wikipedia article, as Ben put it in his tweet. Um, I think one thing that's interesting to point out uh, and then you can go read the rest for yourselves, is that uh, one of the software development houses that we talked about in that episode was Mech, and the M in Mech stood for Minnesota. And uh, they gave us wonderful titles like Number Munchers. It seems that even though the Carmen Sandiego series was produced by Broderbund, a similar state-based educational uh, <laughs> organization also had their hand in creating this North Dakota title. The North Dakota Database Committee. There's a group photo of them in the Wikipedia article. It's not as easy an acronym as MEC. It's the NDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDD
Apple was completely done with Airport. There would be no new updates to Airport products of any sort. They were done until this past week when the latest generation of Airport Express, which got discontinued, or it was last updated several years ago and was part of the overall platform discontinuation, got a software update for AirPlay 2, which is finally here-ish in iOS 12. After a year's delay itself, nobody thought that this was going to go back to previous hardware. It was going to be basically iOS only. But now it is possible on the Airport Express. And for the delightful retro twist that we love, uh, we'll link over to Six Colors, where Jason Snell took his iPod Hi-Fi, which he has in his office, and hooked it up via the aux connection to an Airport Express, and it now shows up on his iOS devices as an AirPlay 2 speaker with essentially no latency, and that is absolutely living the retro Apple dream there. And uh, finally, a larger segment of follow-up about the crowdfunded documentary Love Notes to Newton. We mentioned its release in our previous episode, And since that episode aired, Ed and I both got the chance to uh, rent or purchase the documentary on Vimeo and watch it. And uh, we have some notes. The very first thing I want to say is that I was very impressed by the production value of this documentary for a documentary in general, but specifically for something that was crowdfunded, which I usually, if perhaps unfairly, associate with a kind of amateur status and amateur production value. Or lack of release entirely. Not only did they clear the basic hurdle, but you know, they they really exceeded the bar. Absolutely. Uh, the footage is very clear and high definition. The sound is good. And there are um, graphic effects, especially when they first give someone's name on screen and their association with the Newton community. It's done in the very delightful, low-resolution Apple casual font as if you were scribbling it and uh, having it transcribed on a Newton itself, complete with the scribble over animation and the kind of Mac OS X dock poof of smoke to make the text go away. Uh, It was very good. And I'm reminded by our episode about Apple typography, where Apple Casual (laughs) was a font that we left out of our discussion. And thankfully, Mac Fixer on Twitter pointed it out to us. So I, I'll, I'll give that tweet another shout out here. Yes, Apple Casual was uh, an Apple proprietary font. It was used on the Newton and it was used to great effect in this documentary. One of the quotes that was said in the documentary, and I forgot to write down who said it, um, was, quote, the level of complexity is high enough to be interesting and low enough to understand the entire system, obviously with regards to the Newton. And this is something that I think applies to certainly my affinity for the classic Mac OS. And, you know, a a big reason why I keep doing this show is I think back in the days where you could get ResEdit for free and poke around in your system, and there may be a couple invisible files, but nothing like the Unix-based files that start with a period and user directories and et cetera. The, the classic Mac OS was a lot like this quote about the Newton. It was certainly complex. It was a full-fledged operating system. But the, the kind of bar to entry for understanding how it worked was low enough that someone like Ed and I, 
you know, in, in our teens, early teens could tinker with the system. So that really stuck out to me as a reason why uh, those enthusiasts love the Newton. It's the reason I love the classic Mac. Yeah. I think that the comparison is to things in programming today where you want to make an iOS app that is like hello world. And you look up, how do I do hello world in Swift? And it's just like print hello world, but there's three hours of installing Xcode and figuring out all of this other stuff that wraps around the one line file that says hello world, just to the point that I've never even gotten that far. I was really, really impressed by the segment where they go to Paris and meet with some Newton enthusiasts from France who show off the uh, like a native Newton app that came on the compact flashcard and you would stick it in the side of your Newton of the Michelin Guide to Paris. Michelin, yes, as in the tires, but uh, as I learned not too long ago, the same Michelin that does the one, two, three star rating for like the top restaurants in the world because it was a great way to co- to combine those things. When you're in your car on our tires, where do you want to go? Obviously, only the best restaurants. So they had this complimentary business on the side of the Michelin Guide. And to see it still running on a Newton in 2018 as they like kind of traced its steps through Paris was breathtaking. It was awesome. Right. And this is one of those things that we've talked about before, like with software preservation, where in part because of its simplicity right? That guide has not been updated since it was published. It's entirely on the card. There's no network connectivity involved. There's no server that Michelin had to maintain to keep that running. So while it may be out of date, it's just like an old guide that book that you would pull off the shelf and you could still walk around Paris with it and say, oh, well, you know, obviously like the Arc de Triomphe and the Eiffel Tower are still here, while maybe the restaurants in fact have changed. Uh, some have gone out of business, some are new ones. But the fact that they could run it was because the system itself is just so stable. And without those outside influences, that was one of the things. The Newton is actually extremely well-preserved. If software existed for the Newton and you have functioning Newton hardware, it can almost all be run today. Whereas we have so many apps for iOS, for example, that are 10 or 12 years younger. And because they had all of these other dependencies, that's the thing about the complexity of the system, they're gone because one of those dependent parts that doesn't just live on the phone in your hand has been removed for any number of reasons. And maybe uh, to tie into that, the the last big takeaway I took from the documentary was one of the members of the Newton community talking about how today the phone model is app centric. You have all these individual little silos of your data and the Newton model was data centric. And I think we talked about this when we discussed the Newton on this show. And it's also the kind of the open doc model that we've covered in the show a couple of times. But uh, the, the thing that drove it home for me was uh, this specific person said on the Newton, there should only be one app, the notepad, because that's what this device is emulating. And so you you get your information down on the notepad. And then if it's contact information, it just kind of goes away into the contact. Or if it's a to-do or if it's an event, it goes into your calendar and so on and so on. And uh, the, the data on the Newton, it didn't matter what app you captured it in or what app it was meant to be used for. It all just flowed in between. And here in 2018 on our iPhones, uh, we have the there's an app for that model 
So if you have a specific use case, it goes into that specific app and it stays there. And uh, that was it was refreshing to see that pointed out again. Yeah, I think that given when they filmed this, you know, more than a year ago, I would expect most of the actual primary filming was done, or at least over the past year. They they were pretty down on this fact, like this model is not going to come back. And yet now I think we can maybe see a little bit of hope for it. Like with some of the new iPad features, like where you can touch the Apple Pencil to the screen and go immediately into a note, that's very much like the default app is the Notepad um, or the Notes app in iOS. And now with some, it, it may not be built in in quite the same way, but with some of the crazy stuff that we're seeing people do with the iOS 12 beta and with shortcuts, I can imagine that if you have a mode on your iOS device, for now it's just the iPad, but maybe in the future it could be the iPhone, where you quick jump into a note and then you can use some sort of shortcut to either pull in or act on data that you've selected in the note. That model is actually almost replicable or maybe replicable within the next year or so on iOS, which could be very exciting because, again, of course, those devices are far more powerful than the Newton was and is the reason that many of these people, even the most devout Newton fans who were carrying them, there was a little segment where they kind of go, well, I gave up on it in 2013 or I, I stopped carrying a Newton a couple years ago. My, my iPhone or my, my Android phone in one person's case won out. You almost get the feeling that if Federico Vitici were like 15 or 20 years older, he would have been one of these people. Oh, absolutely. And one of the other things that I learned from the documentary was the connection, a direct connection between Evernote and the Newton, because the one of the co-founders of Evernote was a member of the Paragraph team, Paragraph with capital G, which was the text handwriting recognition engine on the Newton. And so he took that model of having all of your information stored in notes from the Newton, his experience with the Newton, and brought it forward to other modern platforms in the form of Evernote. And say what you will about Evernote in 2018, it may not quite be that same vision or the same vision that that product had at its beginning, but it still exists and people are still looking for that and making modern takes on it. So I think that that was an interesting link that I had not put together before. And the fact that people made that kind of transition is promising for the future. Oh, and one final thing, I guess, follow up on Easter eggs. Um, They talked a lot about Newton Easter eggs, and there were a bunch of them in the handwriting recognition, especially if you wrote the same word three times. There were a number of these. And because that handwriting engine, the Rosetta engine, which was the 2.0 version of the handwriting post Eat Up Martha, (laughs) that one was what was included in OS X as ink and still exists in macOS as of today as ink, only if you attach a drawing tablet. But in Mojave, which is coming very soon as we record this, ink is deprecated And so those handwriting recognition Easter eggs, which are still present on the Mac and can be triggered if you have the right hardware and the right software, they are finally making their their exit after a 
very long run sort of hiding out in the background in macOS. That's a really fun segment of the documentary where the guy is talking about like, as it made that transition from Newton OS to Mac OS and uh, one of his superiors told him to take the code out, but instead he just added a new activation egg layer. So you'd had to do a new Easter egg to unlock the, the previous Easter eggs. It was great. Anyway, it was, uh, it was a really enjoyable documentary. Uh, we've recommended it a few times here. We aren't going to talk about it much more, but uh, if you have not checked it out, definitely go check out Love Notes to Newton. It is not too late to support them uh, and rent or buy the film for your own enjoyment. But now on to the main topic of this episode, the rumor mill. And uh, like Ed said at the top, we'll start by going through a tour of popular rumor sites during the classic Mac era. And I think it's worth talking a little bit about like, how did we get here <laughs> in the, in the era before even the iMac, let alone the iPhone, how is there a market for so many rumor sites? Like what, what, Apple would be coming out with next in the Power Mac G3 line. And I think it just goes to show the the strength and the power of the community. One of the things we talk about in our <laughs> subtitle <laughs> every episode. And I think especially in this season of, uh, of iPhone rumors, the event is, you know, a couple days away from where we record this, but also in this era where the, the whole world is connected and Apple is operating at such a scale that there are thousands of people involved with the production mass manufacturing of iPhones. And so it's not even like rumors from a little birdie, as John Gruber likes to say, but straight up parts leaks or even these dummy models that people are getting now that look exactly like a finished product. Uh, so it's it's kind of taking the fun out of the, the glory days of <laughs> Mac rumors that we will be getting into now. All right. So this is a summary, a tour of... Apple rumors websites. So this is not going to go back all the way to the very first Apple-based rumors that there were. Of course, rumors traded in print for the earlier part of Apple's history. But we're kicking off sort of in the mid-90s because this is when the web is becoming the platform where these rumors can really be traded at a much faster pace than they were previously. Of course, there were rumors that would show up in columns in MacWeek or MacUser or any number of magazines or trade publications. They, of course, wanted to keep their readers, you know, first of all, buying their publications. Uh, if they had the, the hottest rumors or the most accurate rumors, that would help. Um, but the web was, you know, it's a cliche to say that it's like democratization of publishing. But I think that some of these early examples really were that. So let's start off with macOS rumors. So we want to point off that this is not related to the current Mac rumors. But I do remember this site. This was macOSrumors.com. And for a while, it was like my go-to Apple News site. And... This site, though, was started in 1995, so yes, very early web, and it was started by Ethan C. Allen, and he was 16 when he started this site. <laughs> and I think that this is going to be indicative of some of these early sites where it was not about privileged access, it really was about speculation and rumors and conversations about 
what people thought might happen as opposed to, and, and I think that still goes on today, but we have more of a separation between sort of idle speculation and more like confirmed rumors, more just like leaks rather than what could Apple make next? We can all talk about what could Apple make next. And there was a lot of that going on at this point on sites like macOS rumors. So it started in 95 and I think it was, you know, a pretty small site then. The domain expired around 1997 and a different person named Ryan Meter picked it up and helped run the site. In this incarnation is what I remember where the aesthetic of the site was their logo was the two little faces, pixely faces from the users and groups control panel in OS 8. Yeah. And then it had a little sound wave coming out of it, very much like our simple beep logo. And it said, psst, like, come over here. We've got the dirt on Apple. Um, and I was browsing through some of these on the Wayback Machine because you can just sort of page through and see almost like day by day or month by month what was surfacing on this type of rumor site. And I, I just wanted to pick up one crazy example rumor from... 2000, so a few years into the site's existence. At that point, it was pretty well established. I was probably reading it then. And this one, the headline is, Nintendo's Dolphin could provide Mac crossover platform. And in retrospect, this is just completely wrong. So there was also a separate world of Nintendo rumors, which was mostly stoked by Nintendo, because the biggest Nintendo pop publication was Nintendo Power, which was owned by Nintendo. (laughs) So at this point, Dolphin was the code name for what eventually became the GameCube. And there is absolutely nothing to do between, like nothing in common between the GameCube and Macs of that era, other than that they ran power PC processors. That is the beginning and end of it. And someone just seized upon this tiny fact that there might be some hint of architecture similarity and said, aha, <laughs> this will be the Pippin replacer. <laughs> oh, God. So macOS Rumors ran its course, and the site lapsed as of 2007. I don't know if there's any more detail on just what happened or whether the people who were involved uh, just moved on and had other things that they wanted to work on. Yeah, as we'll get to in discussion of other sites, some there's a definite reason why they stopped operating. <laughs> right. But I think here, um, I'm, I'm looking at one of the later captures on the Wayback Machine. They did another little visual refresh. It was their logo became the OS X silhouette person in front of the little globe network. It looks more sinister. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, and they're rebranded as MOSR. Uh, but in this, towards the end of their time, as opposed to at the beginning, where daily they were publishing whatever, throw it all against the wall and see what sticks. Towards the end of their run, they were publishing monthly highlights and reviews of things that had come up over the past month. And so obviously the posting volume had decreased drastically to the point that it was perhaps not driving traffic because if it's only updating once a month may not be a going concern anymore. Yeah. Another one of my favorite Apple sites from this time. This one was a 
sort of infrequent posting site, but I think it made up for it in its charm, which was as the apple turns. And the whole notion of this site was that it was started in September of 97 by Jack Miller, and it focused more on humor and parody than actually getting rumors right. So there was comedy about things that had already been released, and of course, wild speculation, because that's where you can really have some fun with things. One of the things that I remember the most from this site was that they had a quarterly contest called Beat the Analysts, where you were asked to predict to the dollar the quarterly earnings for Apple. And they had prizes that included t-shirts from the site, which, man, I wonder if any of those are still out there. I do not even know what they would have looked like. I guess they would have had the ATAT logo on them. Um, The other thing that they offered were a selection from the Baffling Vault of Antiquity registered trademark. (laughs) It was like their bargain bin of old Mac games. So from the Q3 2004 challenge, they say, there's actually some new stuff in there, believe it or not. In addition to mainstays such as Zork Nemesis 1996, The X-Fools 1997, Angel Devoid Face of the Enemy 1995. These are all linked to reviews of them. Duke Nukem 3D, 1998, and some ancient thing called Maniac Sports, 1994, (laughs) shrink-wrapped, requires at least four megabytes of RAM. (laughs) These were the things that they were giving away. And like, as far as I can tell, they actually did it because they would post the the winner and people who were close for different reasons, like runners up and uh, unless that was all parody too. But I remember entering the contest, and they do have the things where they at least mention what the Apple earnings results were. And so there was one here where the person who got it right was it, it was listed as exactly fifty six million dollars million with an M. <laughs> and just to put things in perspective, I had to do some math on that uh, for if we were having such a contest today. If you had entered. million, you would have accurately predicted Apple's revenue for one hour. (laughs) Suffice it to say, they're doing a little bit better now. (laughs) I also really, really enjoyed this site, and I liked it more on a meta level. Uh, First, I think we have to talk about the site's design, which some of the Internet Archive's captures uh, were able to preserve with the full images because it was styled to look like a classic macOS desktop the individual posts were in uh, Apple Platinum Windows. There was a sidebar that looked like the application switcher. And uh, site announcements were in uh, stickies, like the old classic stickies. And then uh, in keeping with its kind of lighthearted tone, the the way it was written and the way it was presented was as if it was <laughs> a soap opera as the Apple turns. Um, and so instead of posts or entries, their episodes. <laughs> and uh, I just really appreciated the uh, production level, to use that term again, of the website and kept going back to it uh, for the laughs, of course, but also just kind of to marvel at how complete of a recreation they did of the classic desktop. Yeah, I think that other sites attempted such things around this time, and they were the only one that pulled it off, actually rendering 
platinum windows and all of the rest of the desktop in the browser. And it really still almost works today. There are some places where they assumed that they could fill in text and get fonts like Chicago and that they would be bitmapped. And now it looks like serif text in the middle of a title bar, which is a little bit off. But like, I've got one of the windows open right now in the Wayback Machine, and I can resize it all the way across my 4K monitor, and the menu bar scales across, and the windows move. Like, it's it's still pretty good. So we talked about um, the macOS Rumors site kind of just fading away as the domain lapsed. As the Apple turns, kind of had a similar uh, uh, increasingly long period of time between posts until people started realizing that there hadn't been any posts in a while. And there's a kind of sad or, or potentially sad article from Wired, like, you know, right from the top. The headline is MIA, Jack Miller from As the Apple Turns. And it's basically saying, like, does anyone know him? Can anyone reach out? We, like, we, we want more content, obviously, but we also just hope he's okay. But the story had, that story at least has a happy ending. He had just been taking time off because uh, his family celebrated the birth of his daughter. <laughs> and uh, so he relaunched the As the Apple Turns on Blogger and Blogspot. And, it, it, you know, it just wasn't the same. It's got a default Blogspot template. I mean, there there are no fancy windows here. It's not the same. The Wired article that asked where he was, he's, he's missing in action, was in May of 2006. And the blog relaunched in September of 2006. So a couple months later, but, you know, maybe that, that fire is, is stoked again. Not quite. The last post on the second iteration of As the Apple Turns was only a couple months later in November of 2006. Uh, it's, it can be hard to carry on these kind of projects, especially when it's a solo gig and when you've been asked to recreate something where you really needed that spark of creativity and to be in the moment. So it was a game effort and at least provided that closure of, you know, this this was a project that went on for several years and the person outgrew it and they're doing just fine and wish them the best. And as we'll see, their shoes will be filled by someone else because this community just keeps growing and expanding and changing. Yeah, when you think of uh, one of these rumor sites, even if it was more rumor parody, shutting down at the end of 2006 and the iPhone keynote is January 2007, it's almost a perfect time to get out of the game if you're not up to like what's going to be even a quicker pace. Absolutely. The next site we want to mention is Apple Insider, which is particularly notable because it was started in 1998 and it is still very much an active site. However, I don't really think of Apple Insider as a like kind of an original source for rumor and rumor adjacent content. That's not to say it's it's not worth visiting, but I think they do a good job of doing reviews of major Apple releases and kind of collecting content from other sites and aggregating it. Uh, so if you want kind of a, a one-stop shop, Apple Insider is a, a good place to go. Um, the only thing I could find that was of particular note was that they were the original source for uh, the rumor that became true of the Apple Pro mouse, the apology mouse, after years of the hockey puck USB mouse. And uh, it turns out they were actually subpoenaed for the identity and the information of who had ever 
posted that rumor in their forums. And this kind of goes back to what Ed, you were saying earlier is like, at some point, this was just more of a community for people to talk about what could happen. And I think it was in this kind of community environment where one of the forum posters was like, here's what's going to happen. And I'm pretty sure this is exactly what's going to happen. And he or she was exactly right. And Apple went after Apple Insider to, I guess, uh, get their revenge. Right. So an important point in the timeline that we've crossed here is that Steve Jobs has come back to Apple. And there were reports that in the non-Jobs era of Apple, especially as things were looking bleaker and bleaker, uh, we mentioned Wired, this is in the Prey cover era, uh, that there was really no... If someone was coming to you as an Apple employee and wanted to know about what you were working on, that was perhaps more validating than just the overall market response to what you were working on. And so leaking was fairly rampant. Uh, But once Jobs came back, that culture changed. Uh, You could say perhaps reverted back to the way it was or really developed a new culture of secrecy that then, again, you know, it's always trying to plug the holes and then eventually you have to rebuild the wall entirely. But this was at the beginning of that era where Apple started getting pretty litigious, where they were looking at actually shutting down rumors. Of course, they wanted to stop them from the inside. That would be the better way to do it. But if things were getting out, they wanted to shut it down by any means necessary. And sometimes that meant targeting the messenger, even if it was just some individual person who set up a web forum and someone walked onto their web forum and said something true and they rebroadcast it. So I think that that's a good place to move on to the most infamous case of Apple going after a rumor site. And that rumor site is none other than Think Secret. So this site was started in 1999, again, back in the Jobs 2 era. And it was started by Nicholas Ciarelli when he was just 13. So um, actually, he has a Wikipedia page because he he got some notoriety, as we'll get to in just a moment here. And uh, his birthday is September 6th. So uh, happy birthday, Nick. You are one year younger than us. <laughs> but back in 1999, he was, he was starting Think Secret. And he, perhaps cleverly, but maybe not cleverly enough, thought, you know, maybe I should write under... A, uh, a assumed name. <laughs> you might say a pen name? Because he went by Nick DePlume, of course. It basically just means Nick DePen. <laughs> yeah. He was doing this semi-anonymously. I think that looking back at the Wayback Machine, this definitely fell in the vein of the sites where, you know, he was a kid and he followed Apple and he wrote stuff that was plausible but not necessarily sourced. Once the site gained some traction, people started sending him stuff, and you publish basically anything you got. Uh, because, again, like there are certain analyst sites that do this today, where people will just write a whole bunch of stories, uh, or just you know pump out story after story after story. Because then, when you hit with some prediction, that looks great, even though. If you look at the site archives, it's the one story out of a thousand that got an accurate prediction before the thing happened. But that still elevates your status rather than just trying to be 
perfect and only publish things that you know to be exactly true. That's a news site as opposed to a rumors site. Uh, so this was still very much in the rumors site vein. But he started getting better and better scoops to the point that in uh, the end of 2004, leading into January 2005, he was clearly getting direct leaks from people within Apple. And there was some language in the posts that indicated, you know, this is verified sources, people who really know what they're talking about. Um, and he did a five article series leading up to the Macworld keynote that year that basically just laid out the whole thing. <laughs> um, so it got the Mac Mini, Pages, the Aluminum iMac, uh, Fat Nano, iPod Touch. Those were some of those were spread out over a couple of years, but he got all of these leaks almost exactly right, down to, you know, some of them down to the pricing, uh, some of them down to the name, some of them he had the specs and the pricing, but not the name, but it was very well-sourced leaks, and Apple was not happy with this. It was a kind of a bombastic rumor site in some ways, so the one that leaked the Mac Mini is, the headline was, exclusive, Apple to drop sub-$500 Mac bomb at Expo. Um, so, Really playing it up. Definitely earned its name in the Mac community at the time, but got the attention of Apple to the point that they sued him for posting Apple trade secrets and encouraging and inducing persons to provide product information in breach of agreements, which sounds pretty serious. Um, but he did fight back for a while, uh, including the site filed an anti-slap uh, suit. So there's a certain law in the US and in California in particular where you can say this person is trying to sue me just to shut me up. Like that I have I have free speech rights here, that they're trying to sue me just so that I have to go through the burden of filing a lawsuit or defending this lawsuit and I can't afford to do that. So it will, whether they're right or not, it will effectively limit my speech. But of course, to do that, you actually have to prove that you aren't committing some sort of violation in the meantime, right? So, like, um, it, it prevents you from having to go through the entire, like, trial process, but there's still a, a smaller piece. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I live with lawyers. <laughs> so I know a little bit about this. But, you know, it, it's a quicker way to assess whether this is being done just to punish you. Because the you know in this case the big company Apple doesn't like what you're saying, or whether Apple actually has a case that no you're saying things that are illegal to say because, as I said you know they're publishing trade secrets or things like that that are not protected by free speech in the same way. Um, the litigation went back and forth on that. Uh, and eventually in 2007, end of 2007, so basically two years later, they settled, a uh, confidential settlement, of course. So there's an article that we can link to where he, he spoke to Wired about the aftermath, but wasn't really able to say a whole heck of a lot uh, because of the confidential settlement. But obviously, one of the terms of the settlement was to shut down the site. And I don't know, I don't really know what that accomplished, because in one respect, that's saying, like, you're not allowed to do this again. But we're going back and finding all of these things on the Wayback Machine. And obviously, people at Apple are certainly technical enough to know that 
records of the site as it was were preserved. So it wasn't like they actually got this scrubbed from the internet entirely because that's effectively impossible. But it did prevent him and the other people who were working at Think Secret from doing the same kind of thing in the future. And of course, it severed a lot of those leak links from within Apple to rumor sites. And if, and one of the things that we don't know, but could have been a term of the settlement, was that he actually had to name names or provide as much identifying information as possible to Apple to try to figure out who the internal leakers were. That was one of the things that was mentioned in the Wired article, and he was kind of like wishy-washy on, which means <laughs> that it well could have been, because otherwise they might... I think that they probably would have gone for... Uh, to extract some money from the site otherwise, but that was really what they were after, was the source of the leaks, not the site itself. But that was definitely collateral damage in the battle of Apple versus ThinkSecret. And to that point, we talked about Nick choosing his <laughs> pen name, Nick DePlume, and it wasn't until the proceedings of this lawsuit that anyone really knew his actual legal last name so like he may have been required to out other people, but he was effectively outed to the community, the larger Apple rumors community or even Apple community at large. And it didn't go well for him overall. I think uh, I don't have specific links here or notes, but like he was he was bashed online, not necessarily for like uh, causing financial irreparable financial harm to Apple, but it, just in the way that internet mobs can form and focus on someone who's the center of a controversy. I think once his his real name was out there, he found himself one of those targets, which is unfortunate. Yeah, definitely. Although it, it seems like uh, he has since landed on his feet and uh, wish him well. One thing I want to talk about really quickly, I think it's really cool that you chose the the Mac mini article as, as a, an example, because one of the big juicy tidbits there is the price, the sub $500 price. And it's well known that marketing and pricing are things that can just be, you know, like emails between Phil Schiller's department. And those might be some of the hardest details to get out. Parts can find their way out of a Chinese manufacturing facility very easily in comparison. And so this was a big deal. And I think it's very cool that the <laughs> The $500 price point is the thing that leaked because at, at least for a time, there was a time where similar to Nintendo and Nintendo Power, Apple would try to stoke uh, rumor fires on their own by strategically leaking information to the Wall or no, the Washington Post. Because I think the best example of this is leading up to the unveiling of the original iPad, where uh, the, the Post published an article that it was uh, expecting a $999 price point. And Apple was able to come out and say, like, people are expecting a $1,000 price point. Well, it's half of that. And uh, so they hit that $500 thing in a way that was surprising because they were able to control the rumor mill at uh, something artificially inflated. So I think it's cool that uh, a couple years ago, or a couple years before that, that same price point was leaked in maybe uh, was like the straw that broke the camel's back for them and think secret. The next site 
uh, chronologically in terms of being founded is Mac Rumors. And this is still very much alive and well today. This is kind of my de facto source for Apple news, not necessarily rumors, but certainly news about uh, the company itself. And they do lots of coverage about companies kind of in the ecosystem. Uh, this is where I I always hear about reports from Ming-Chi Kuo, who is not necessarily trading in rumors, but actual like this this is what the, the market forces on the ground in China are indicating <laughs> through like parts deals and parts manufacturing spinning up. Um, Mac Rumors was started in February 2000 by Arnold Kim, who continues to run it today. He made it his full-time job in July of 2008, so a little over eight years later. And in looking up information for this episode, I discovered this tidbit. He had been running Mac Rumors as a, a spare time project while he was a doctor, <laughs> like uh, a physician, a nephrologist, which I had to look up on Wikipedia and is uh, referring to uh, treating and diagnosing things with your kidneys. Not a phrenologist. <laughs> and he was able to step away from the medical profession <laughs> as an MD to focus on Mac Rumors full-time, which I think is very cool and speaks to the power of this little sub-niche of our community. Absolutely. And just the fact that careers can be built there. We, we've moved from where this is a kid's hobby, literally, to an adult's full-time job, uh, and that these are some of these sites are you know, large teams of people, or at least medium-sized teams of people, who are, who are making a living at this. And I think it's also part of the transition where instead of the early approach of post any and everything, including news, rumors, and unfounded speculation, we've got these more hybrid rumor sites. Like I would put Mac rumors in this in this category. You said, Brian, it's one of your top Apple news sources, right? Like they are currently now spinning up the rumor mill for what's going to happen at the Apple keynote. But of course, they're also going to provide factual coverage, lots of it in the days and weeks following the keynote as we find out more about the released products and what you can do with them. And one of the things that has been a staple on their site for a while now is their buyer's guide, which tells people it it's completely factual. All it does is it says, here is a product line from Apple, here is when it was last updated, and here's the history of that and how Often, on average, it gets updated and whether now is a good time to buy or not. And then they have a little sidebar that has rumors of what might be coming, but they're really presenting it to you like, this is just hard data. Like, do, do we think that this product is going to be updated? Well, there's a pattern, and you should base your decision on that pattern rather than on what we think is coming up next just purely on leaks and rumors. So they really are, uh, I, I think that there are some places that are pure Apple news sites still, where they are reluctant to comment even on what seem like the most verified or verifiable rumors, 
before things are fully announced. And maybe they'll put a small piece into their coverage just because they feel obligated to do it. Uh, whereas Mac Rumors really has a foot on both sides, and that can actually provide for really rounded coverage. So the next site on the list that we have here, I am not super familiar with. It's called SpyMac. Yes, uh, I am very familiar with this site because, uh, Ed, you said that kind of in the, the days of the classic Mac and maybe when we were in college, Mac OS rumors was your go-to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spy Mac was mine. And I don't remember how I found it, but it certainly was not its controversial beginning uh, because it was basically this one guy uh, who was pretty good with some graphic design and maybe some like After Effects motion design and fabricated his own rumor about a product called the iWalk in October of 2001. And this thing, there are some links we'll put in the show notes that uh, that preserved some of the, the original SpyMac rumor. Uh, it kind of looks like a cross between a late model PDA and a Zune, but with the Apple white plastic uh, product design. And some physical brushed metal controls lifted straight out of a QuickTime player window. Yes. And uh, like probably an, an impossibly high resolution color display for something of this size. And anyway, so this guy Holger Ellis basically created a site, SpyMac, around this one rumor and certainly got a lot of press for it because I guess for late 2001, these materials can be... Uh, convincing um i don't know if it would pass <laughs> muster these days there was there was um this is a stupid sidetrack but there was a kind of blessed era of like early iphone where the only way we could <laughs> believe uh, a leaked photo of an upcoming product was if it was like blurry and taken in an elevator as, as like someone was hurrying to get out of apple headquarters with their information all good spy shots were taken on camera phones and the cameras were garbage. Yeah, so maybe this this was like part of the the start of that era. Anyway, the, obviously the iWalk was not a real product. It never came to be. The iPod was Apple's original mobile device and mobile device of that era. Um, but SpyMac somehow turned from that one rumor that was eventually thoroughly debunked <laughs> um, into its own rumor site and uh they didn't really ever have another like they weren't ever really again the original source for something groundbreaking but they did a good job of reporting on other rumors to the point where it was a place that i could easily turn to and they did have a very active uh community forum which is where i i didn't even go to the main site that often i was just hanging out in the spymac forums uh, when I was at college, so like 2003 to 2007 era. Um, SpyMac was a weird place. If you go to Holger's current blog, which is grokthaweb.com, we'll put a link in the show notes where he talks about his uh, quote-unquote magic moment where he decides to fabricate a rumor and then fabricate a site around it. Uh, but you'll see there are tabs for navigating his blog, and uh, those tabs were the exact same design as the SpyMac tabs. So his blog in 2018 is rooted in like mid 2000s design. <laughs> um, and a spy Mac, I think really grew on the strength of those community forums. Um, there were like sub 
almost like subreddits, I guess. There were different forum areas that I would hang out in. And uh, there was one, oh my God, it's, it's all coming back to me now. <laughs> there was one thread that was all about uh, like ultra portables or sub portables or whatever, like before netbooks, even the idea of a full-fledged laptop that uh, was, you know, smaller than the 12 inch laptops that were as small as Apple went at the time. And there was an affinity for like this, I don't know, nine or 10 inch Fujitsu laptop that somehow still had an optical drive and some semblance of a keyboard uh, that this, this particular sub thread on SpyMac was always going nuts over. <laughs> anyway, so SpyMac grew on the strength of its community and not so much its initial direction as Apple rumors and Apple news to the point where they kind of became a competitor slash a companion to iTools or .Mac. What? You could get at spymac.com email addresses and they gave you a gigabyte of space before Gmail existed. So that was, you know, that was wild. Um, I, I forget that. I knew that there was one called wheel. I think it was involved with like contacts or, or, or sending uh, iCard essentially type things to different people in the SpyMac community. And then in January of 2007, they did a full pivot away from like community Apple centric or Apple designed uh, online community features to basically being trying to be YouTube a year too late. And SpyMac was a video site where you could upload your own videos and watch other people's videos. And that pretty much crashed and burned because they were too late. But uh, it was just a, a wild site that had a really vibrant, very niche community that uh, I would go to every day and is no longer part of my life. You got to admire these guys hustle. Also, we're going to link to the very first capture of SpyMac in the show notes. And like I said, not only not only hustle, but chutzpah. Like, so I figured, okay, you know, someone wants to make a rumor hoax or any kind of hoax in the modern internet era. You have to like register an account somewhat in advance and kind of populate it with things that look natural so that it just happens naturally that this site that has been publishing Apple News all along has gotten this leak and here it is. No. <laughs> SpyMac, the first capture is the first post on the site is the iWalk piece and says the iWalk as the mysterious new mysterious device is called that is going to be announced on Tuesday, 23rd of this month, like like you've heard of it before, because this was not even a rumored name. It was not anything. And then there's the picture at the bottom, and it says, Older News, Archive Empty, because it's literally the first post on the site. The post is full of typos. And then they're like, oh, uh, I guess we've got our paper over this a little bit. And then at the bottom it says, About Us. The site was offline over the last weeks due to problems with our ISP. It's currently hosted by a German friend, but we will move to our new own servers in the near future. It's like, no, they literally just started a blank WordPress blog or whatever this is and posted posted their very fake, very poorly written story. But man, I guess I guess that one picture, like two pictures, the the one picture is not showing up in the Wayback Machine. Two pictures was enough for all of us rabid, rumor-craving Apple fans to latch onto it, to the point that they ran for years. 
we'll put a link in the show notes also to Paul Kathasis of Rogue Amoeba. Um, on his blog, he has a retrospective about the iWalk rumor uh, because I think he he had like broken his leg and actually got a device called the iWalk or something similar to assist him as he as he recuperated. And there's a really funny twist at the end where he's like, man, look at this one guy railing on like the, the forum post accompanying the iWalk. Uh, oh, wait, this was me. <laughs> <laughs> there's some additional funny twists with the, the iWalk and other names uh, on a site aptly enough named Crazy Apple Rumors. They knew exactly what they were talking about here. Yeah, this was started by John Moltz of frequent the talk show guest host. <laughs> Um, fame. He started it in December 2001. And this is similar to As the Apple Turns. This is like a, a more on the parody side of the Apple Rumors community than actually trying to break news or offer completely serious commentary. And since he was in around that time, he has his own post about the iWalk. And we'll put a link in the show notes because uh Towards the end of this post where he's talking about other names, like because iWalk is a dumb name, he throws out as an example of another dumb name, iPad, in 2001. Well, you know, it could happen. (laughs) I think we'll round off by coming up to the present, as we like to do. Uh, And as we said, things, we had our little silly interlude there, but things in the Apple rumors sphere have gotten more serious. And there has been none more serious than the coverage that has gone on at 9to5Mac. And this was a site that I think did launch fairly quietly as sort of just a a regular Apple news site. But then that was in 2007 when it was founded. But then they happened to have a contributor who had some really good scoops by the name of Mark Gurman, who just time after time after time was predicting exactly what Apple was releasing uh, with clear connections inside the company. And that really got them their name in the top tier of Apple rumors. Uh, Of course, uh, a couple years ago, Gurman left from 9to5Mac to go to Bloomberg, where he now still has ties to Apple. And uh, as you will read in the articles, it'll say uh, he will predict something exactly as the people said because of the Bloomberg style guide. But 9to5Mac is carrying on uh, with their news coverage, and uh, they are still picking up the the rumors game. Um, I think just recently, uh, Guy Rambo had a piece there uh, at underscore inside on Twitter, uh, the famous iOS uh, deconstructor um, with some latest tidbits about what's going on in iOS and what that reveals about upcoming Apple products. So they are still very much on the rumors beat. The 9to5Mac author page for Mark Gurman uh, is like, he's no longer an active author. So it's, it's kind of written in the past tense and it's, it's so comprehensive because they are sure to point out every time he predicted something exactly right. Whoa, there are a lot of hyperlinks here. <laughs> yeah, we won't we won't go into detail here on the show, but you should check out this link in the show notes. The first thing I remember Mark getting like astoundingly completely right was the one port 12 inch Retina MacBook. But there are a, a, a bunch of hits on here. So that brings us up to the present of the publishers of Apple Rumors, but I think uh, it would be good to also quickly go through, and we we picked out some favorite rumors that 
were sort of make or break moments for some of these sites and some of the comical ones that were fun examples or played for deliberate comedy. But I think it's important to also go through some of maybe the more high profile rumors themselves, regardless of the forum that they were in. Uh, again, chronologically, and th- this time we'll go back a little bit earlier because we can get some of these records from uh, from things that existed either before the web in print uh, or from things like Tidbits, which was published in various other electronic forms uh, before the regular web. Um, so a couple from the very early era of the Mac was that people were always looking for what the low-cost Mac was going to be. And what's the next low-cost Mac going to be? You know, after the SE, that's sort of a um, more affordable Mac. And But then the SE was getting long in the tooth, and the SE30 was very expensive comparatively. And so what is going to be the low-cost Mac? And this was before people even knew that it was going to be called the Mac LC. <laughs> Eventually, Apple was actually going to embrace that and call it the LC, standing for low cost. Um, And one of these that I found in Tidbits, uh, we'll have links to some of these, is that there were rumors that Apple couldn't actually manufacture a low cost Mac themselves and were going to outsource it to Tandy, makers of Radio Shack brand computers. (laughs) Um, And that, of course, never came to pass, but I thought that that was a, a pretty funny one. Also, on the high end, people are always looking for the next high-end Mac as well. I mean, we live for our Mac Pro rumors these days, right? Um, and so the Macintosh had come out. The Macintosh 2 series had come out and been very successful and had multiple iterations, but was running its course. And people are saying, well, what's the Macintosh 3 going to be? Because, of course, there's going to be a Macintosh 3. There was an Apple 3. It was terrible, but... That would be the the next logical thing to do. So there are many, many, many rumors talking about what is the Macintosh 3 going to be. In fact, some of them were extremely accurate as it got down to the release of this computer, uh, having things like the clock speed, the number of RAM slots and new bus slots and all of that exactly right. But again, missing the marketing piece that that was actually going to be released as the first Quadra. From three to four, too. Right. They skipped right over three because the Apple three was bad. (laughs) One of the, I think maybe the first rumor that I remember being aware of and, and the hype around it was what was Apple's next big operating system going to be? after the era of System 7, because uh, there is 7 and 7.1. 7.5 was pretty cool. 7.6 was, uh, was, was getting there. But we were all wondering what was going to happen after the, the 7.x series of operating systems ran their course. And there were a bunch of <laughs> rumors in this direction. And uh, obviously, Apple came out with Mac OS 8. Um, but for a while... I think that the the big name that everyone was looking forward to was Copeland. This led to the uh, the Aaron extension we've talked about on the show after Aaron Copeland that let you skin your System 7 like what the rumored next generation system would look like. Um, and there's a great article that Ed found on Tidbits that laid out a, a, a multi-year plan for Apple's big 
uh, OS transition away from System 7 to the point where there's going to be a transition OS uh, between the the remnants of System 7 and the the radical new (laughs) whatever comes next called Marconi. And one of the things that they get right in here is that they say, we think that the next thing won't actually be System 8 or, you know, System X, whatever comes next, but it'll be Mac OS and Marconi may be Mac OS 1. Well, they got the Mac OS part, right? Right, because Mac OS 7.6 was a thing. Yeah, System 7.5 to Mac OS 7.6. But this was this was well before that. So, so they knew that that name transition was coming, but it was such a chaotic mess in terms of what projects were behind, what were skunk works, what was actually getting approved, that which one of these came out. I mean, Marconi, it says in here, Marconi was leaning heavily on OpenDoc technology, which was perhaps a viable option then, but was, of course, effectively killed before the release of Rhapsody as Mac OS 8. So there are things all over the map because really Apple's OS development team was all over the map. There's, of course, uh, around the same time, will Apple acquire someone else to form the uh, the structure for their next operating system? And they did. They acquired Next, and that's how we got to OS 10. But one of the other rumors around this time was B, B-E, or the, the BOS, uh, which I always remember from this era of uh, its kind of isometric 45-degree um, angle icons and their little pegmen people to represent the users and groups. Um, so yeah, this, this, there's a, this whole era of rumors about what is Apple doing after System 7? And the answer was Mac OS 8, and not a lot of what you thought. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> there's... And you dropped this wonderful headline into our show notes because uh, like a perpetual rumor um, perpetuated by Gene Munster is that Apple is making a television as in like a television set, a screen. And he stuck with this for a long time, even after the the ITV, which turned into the Apple TV. There were these articles that were like the post-mortem on him going on for this and how he it was at least four years of beating the Apple TV drum. And the headline that you have put in our show notes, which is from MacRumors.com, is uh, Gene Bunster faces the prospect of no Apple television set. <laughs> He's coming to terms with his reality. There were other good ones um, from iPhoneInCanada.ca. Analyst Gene Munster finally abandons hope of an Apple television. <laughs> Abandon hope. Um CNBC, Munster Culpa, I was wrong about Apple TV. (laughs) 9 to 5 Mac from 2014. It's time for Munster's annual Apple television prediction, and this time it's two years away. (laughs) People ragged on him for this. Um, And of course, it never happened. (laughs) I can confidently predict without knowing for sure that uh, when John Gruber was doing his Jackass of the Week column at Daring Fireball, that Gene Munster was the recipient a couple times. Oh, wait, I've got one more. The Verge, May 19, 2015. Analyst's years-long dream of an Apple television dies a quiet death. So the fact that he basically said, I no longer believe this rumor itself became news around the entire community, which shows... Yeah, that's literally just the first page of Google results for Munster Apple television. Um, Kind of on that note, let's talk about a couple rumors that like caught fire but were, in hindsight, terrible ideas that uh, didn't obviously didn't come to pass. And uh, one was that as uh, fervor around this Apple's making a phone rumor is picking up, what's it going to look like? 
um, a lot. It's enough people were convinced that it was going to be some kind of rotary click wheel iPod hybrid that uh, that rumor itself made it into the iPhone keynote. So that's a, uh, you know, that's worth mentioning. Definitely. Another one that uh, happened in the iPhone era was when rumors of what the iPhone 5 physical design were going to be, but before there were these confirmed part leaks out of China, um, the most reliable rumors were that it was going to have the same shape as the iPhone 4, but just with a slightly taller, thinner aspect ratio screen. And everyone said, that's impossible. Apple will never do that. They must have something far more clever up their sleeve. And so there were all these rumors of teardrop shape iPhone 5 designs where it would taper like a MacBook Air did. And there were terrible mock-ups of this. And podcasts went around and around and around on what would this look like? How would it work? Would it reduce battery life? And then Apple released the phone and they go, here it is. It looks like an iPhone 4, but the screen is taller. And everyone went, we wasted a lot of time on that rumor. <laughs> and then uh, I guess we have, we we bring this segment of rumors that, that seem to keep coming up, but uh, never coming to fruition and bring it into today. Uh, Ed, you've listed here the Apple car, which has been a rumor forever, uh, slash Project Titan, which may be the closest thing we've come <laughs> Yeah, and again, another one that lasted for multiple cycles. Um, it, it was one of these where, you know, sometimes there's a rumor, and if it doesn't come to pass in the next Apple event, it just kind of goes away. Um, especially if something else, a similar product, is released, you go, oh, well, that rumor was wrong, on to the next. But obviously, Apple has never released a car, <laughs> um, although they do have self-driving cars in testing in California. Uh, people know this because the state requires them to disclose it uh, for legal purposes. Um, but it's some sort of very small project, and we don't know exactly what it's for uh, at this point. But because Apple didn't like immediately release a car in the six months after this rumor came out that they were working on a car, it just kept going and going and going. And I think the funniest thing about that rumor was that, like early iPhone rumors, People started doing mock-ups. Oh, God, and they're bad. Right? Like, they're terrible. They're like these, like, pods with an Apple logo on the side. Or there was that one where, like, a whole de a design firm, like, made the Apple car, and it looked like your worst Pinewood Derby car from third grade. Like, it was awful. But people won't let it go. And the fact of the matter is that if Apple ever releases a car, it's going to look like a car. <laughs> I remember when... Not necessarily a rumor like people actually thought with certainty that it was going to happen, but the kind of discussion that you were talking about in the early uh, sites of the, the mid-90s, I remember talk of like, Apple should make a car. It makes so much sense. Like they make such elegantly designed things that really simplify and, and strip away the unnecessary. And being the mid-90s and before the Microsoft strategic investment in Apple in 97, uh it was like peak Mac versus PC and you had to pick a side. And I remember being or reading through uh, rumor forums, maybe before Spy, I mean, certainly before Spy Max and maybe Mac OS rumors. That's like, well, if Apple makes a car, it's only going to have one pedal. <laughs> that's so dumb. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a rumor that's been there since probably, I don't know, 1991. <laughs> I think that covers at least a couple decades of Apple rumors 
And the fact of the matter is that Apple is not going anywhere anytime soon. And that means that there will be a steady stream of Apple rumors for years to come. And of course, we could not cover every single Apple rumor, not even all of the high points. So if there was another Apple rumor site, especially, that you remember, uh, and if you can give us a Wayback link, even better. Uh, or if there was just some crazy Apple rumor that you remember seeing come across your part of the internet that you have not forgotten to this day and we didn't mention, feel free to send it to us and we'll cover it and follow up in a future show. You can, of course, find us on Twitter at simple underscore beep, or if you have a longer message, you can pass that along to us on our website through contact form at simplebeep.com. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.